My name is Haley Moore, and you're listening to Theories in 30. So today we're going to talk about the Malaysia Airlines 370. I'm going to go ahead and say, forgive me for these pronunciations. So the initial disappearance of Malaysia Flight 370 was on March 8, 2014, during a flight from Kuala Lumpur to Beijing with 227 passengers and 12 crew members on board. The flight took off at 12.41 a.m. local time and reached cruising altitude of 35,000 feet at 1.01 a.m. Shortly after that, the Aircraft Communication Addressing and Reporting System, also known as ACARS, sent its last transmission at 1.07 a.m. and was mysteriously shut off. The communication from the crew came in at 1.19 a.m. and at 1.21 a.m., the transponder was completely shut off. This was just as the plane was entering the Vietnamese airspace. At 1.30 a.m., Malaysian military and civilian radar began tracking the plane as it turned and flew southwest over the Malay Peninsula and then northwest over the Strait of Malacca. At 2.22 a.m., Malaysian military lost contact with the plane over the Andaman Sea. An intermars satellite in orbit over the Indian Ocean received hourly signals from 3.70 until 8.11 a.m. So just its disappearance initially is completely crazy to me. Like, how can you lose an entire plane. I don't know if I just sound kind of like, oh my gosh, they lost a plane. No, like they lost a plane, an entire plane. So moving on from that, the search is where it starts to get kind of interesting. So the initial searches began concentrating on the South China Sea where it was last seen. So a week later, the Inmarsat contact was disclosed. The analysis of all of its information couldn't give like a dead signal like a precise signal um it gave a larger range but it gave like two options to where it could be the first option was java southward into the indian ocean southwest of australia and then you had northward across asia from vietnam to turkmenistan the search was then expanded to the Indian Ocean southwest of Australia on the Southern Arc, Southeast Asia, Western China, and the Indian subcontinent and Central Asia. On March 24, 2014, the Malaysian Prime Minister, Najib Razak, announced that based on analysis of the final signals, they had decided that the flight crashed in a remote part of the Indian Ocean, about 1,500 miles southwest of Australia deeming it really unlikely for any survivors. Eventually, the search for the plane went to a small standstill due to the remote location of the crash site. I think this is kind of crazy because the prime minister, basically, from what we were given, that the signal couldn't find anywhere and gave us two spots. And then the prime minister was like, oh, hey, yeah, never mind. It's in this one remote spot. Like, who's going to, like, who's going to look there and be like, oh, I guess the plane is there. Let's just tell people that so that they don't keep questioning. And then eventually, on April 6, 2014, an Australian ship detected several pings, probably from 370's flight recorder, about 1,200 miles northwest of Perth, Australia. Further analysis showed that there were partial signals from the plane at 8.19 a.m. consistent with the locations of the pings. Unfortunately, further searches concluded that it was most likely a faulty cable since the pings were over an extremely wide area. So other than that, nothing had like been heard from anything for about a year. Um, 
Then all of a sudden, on July 29th, 2015, the right-wing flapperon was discovered on a beach on the French island of Reunion, about 2,300 miles west of the Indian Ocean, that was being searched by Australian authorities. Over the next year and a half, 26 more pieces and debris would show up on multiple different shores away from where it had originally thought to have crashed. Only three of these pieces were certified as to belonging to Flight 370, but at least 17 were basically matches. Many of these pieces showed that it was highly unlikely that the crash was controlled into water. So that greatly narrowed the search radius in the Indian Ocean due to a possible crash site that would not have produced this type of debris. The government of Malaysia, Australia, and China called off the search for Flight 370 in January of 2017. The American company Ocean Infinity received permission to continue looking until March 2017 when they officially called off any search for the aircraft. In July 2018, the Malaysian government issued its final report saying mechanical malfunction was extremely unlikely and the change in the flight path most likely resulted from manual inputs but there was never a true reason found for the flight disappearance of 370. So just hearing the background, it's already super sketchy. I have about three conspiracies for this, two or three. Um, personally, I think it was aliens, but that's a whole nother thing we're gonna talk about in another episode, just the conspiracy to aliens, but I'm getting ahead of myself here. So the two we're gonna talk about today are hijacking and a fire. So, for the hijacking one, this is the fun one, this is the, ooh, they got hijacked one, the crazy one. So, the loss of the ACARS and transponder really pulled up the theories surrounding hijacking, but not a single group of people took responsibility of this, and it would have been highly unlikely for them to fly into the Indian Ocean. In an article by Abby Lou Allen, she gathers information on why the plane was hijacked, the main clue being the sharp U-turn performed mid-flight. This U-turn was so aggressive, many people believe it could not have happened without manual interference. Llewellyn interviewed a flight and global operations and safety editor, David Learmount, who claims that there is no other way for this to have happened. He claims that after the U-turn, the plane continued to fly in between the boundary of Malaysian and Vietnamese-controlled airspace, and then between Malaysian and Thai-controlled airspace, with each country thinking the opposite was in charge of the aircraft. This means that the plane was almost always flying between two flight information regions. He also claims that it could not have happened with the plane on its own because it was such a sharp turn. He says that somebody on board carried this out because it couldn't have happened any other way. To normal people, that might have been coincident, but to someone who is trained, this was extremely accurate and the plane could not have done it itself. Because of the high skill you would need to make this happen, suspicion fell onto the pilot who had a flight simulator in his basement that was eerily close to all the coordinates of Flight 370. This was then partially debunked by psychiatrist Dr. Sally Lavesey that the pilot Shaw did not fit the psychological profile of someone who could carry this out. But as we all know, people don't show their inside as much as they do their outside. Basically, he could have been hiding all these thoughts and no one could have known. So this is where I go into the most likely cause so basically, pilot Chris Goodfellow put out an article on Google Plus giving his theory of what really happened to Flight 370. A fire. 
Uh, he believes that the pilot, Zahari Ahmed Shah, was experienced enough to know where the nearest airport of safety would be in the event of a crisis. He states that as a senior pilot, as well as Shaw having over 18,000 hours of flight time, he knew exactly what he was doing, but unfortunately, it was too late. He believes that 370 was heading into the direction of the airport in Palu Langkawi, a 13,000-foot airstrip with an approach over water, rather than headed back to Kuala Lumpur because he knew he had 8,000 ridges to cross before getting to safety. So Palau Langkawi was the safest option. In the article, Goodfellow mentions the loss of transponders and communication makes the perfect sense in a fire. The most likely reason of this would be an electrical fire. In fire protocol, you must isolate all of the circuits until you find the culprit of the fire, causing the plane to go silent. Judging from this, it was most likely a serious event that the entire crew was focusing on, controlling the plane and fighting the fire at the same time. Goodfellow's final theory is that the smoke got so bad from the fire that it had eventually reached the landing gear. It got to a point there was no longer a chance of control, and the plane either went into autopilot or the fire had destroyed the control center and it crashed. In his conclusion, Goodfellow mentions an important part to all of this. If there is a fire in the aircraft, the main goal of the pilot is to get everyone onto safety and the machine on the ground as possible. Unfortunately, it seems as though Captain Shaw ran out of time to do so. So, this has all been, like, an unfortunate incident that everyone knows about. It's crazy. In my personal beliefs, I really don't know what happened in this flight. Like, it could have been aliens. It could have been, like, who's not to say that a giant hand reached out and grabbed them? No one was there. No one knows. Um, but, personally, it could end up like the show Manifest from Netflix where... Everyone just shows up in like 12 years and everyone's fine and hasn't aged. Essentially, this is one of the craziest like cases I have seen of just disappearance of nothing. Like you have the occasional, oh, the remote control is gone. Where did it go? No, this is like a whole plane. Like the whole plane is gone and no one has an idea of where it is. How does that happen? Leave a comment down below in our little comment section of the Rhinian to tell me what you think happened to the plane. And that's all for now. Join me next time when we talk about Denver Airport aliens or the Illuminati. Have a good day. Series in 30 is out.